0: Good morning. Welcome to Sound Sight. This is Tom Kern. It's a Sacred Heart Radio Book Club edition of the program, and I'm joined today by Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. Today we are discussing for the second time the book by Father Robert Spitzer, Christ vs. Satan in Our Daily Lives. The Cosmic Struggle Between Good and Evil, published by Ignatius Press. Hello, Father Lewis and Father Nagel. Hello, Hello, Tom. Good morning. Yeah, but we are now officially in August. Now, we're recording this in July, so yeah. but in August, yeah. uh, at the end of July, and here we are uh, when this is aired. It will be August. I can't believe how fast the summer is going by.
1: I know. I know. Yeah, don't wow. remind me.
0: <laughs> well, and for Father Nagel, especially with your move, um, right? you missed it, Father Lewis. Last week, we uh, had a chance to interview Father uh, Nagel all about making shifts and changes and, and how does that all happen and all of that. It was a really fascinating conversation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting for me, too. That was good. Yeah, well, good.
0: Well, good. Well, today, we're going to dive right in. We're going to go to our break, and then when we come back, we'll introduce the book briefly by Father Robert Spitzer, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, and we are going to dive in beginning with Chapter 4, back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. Father Nagel is going to lead us off with a scripture and a prayer.
2: I'd like to start with a uh, reading from Mark 1, verses 9 through 13. It happened in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. On coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit drove him into the desert, and he remained in the desert for forty days, tempted by Satan. He was among the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Almighty God, uh, in our own journey through this world, this life, from our baptism to heaven, we are also tempted oftentimes in the wilderness. I ask your blessings upon all who are speaking on this program but also listening in that that we might gain uh, knowledge and grace from Father Spitzer's insights and, and just also from the way in which you want to work through this program that we might continue this journey towards you well and courageously, worthily, humbly. Uh, let us resist the temptations of the evil one, and again, bless and anoint this hour, we ask through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much, Father Nagel. All right, I've been given the task to just give a brief overview of this book, Christ vs. Satan in Our Daily Lives, The Cosmic Struggle Between Good and Evil by Father Robert Spitzer. If you had a chance to listen to the first part, which was now over a month ago, we had a chance to sort of introduce the book. Father Lewis gave kind of a like a, a thorough overview of how this book is the first of a trilogy of books. The first two have been published, and it follows from and can be traced back or rooted in a, uh, a quartet of books that Father Spitzer has already published, which focused more on the rational side, the reason Pursuing side of our faith and in flourishing as a human being, this particular book he wrote at a moment during the, he discerned it during a moment of uh, COVID where he saw so many things happening that just seemed to be sort of out of control and it's like what is going on here, and he saw the hand of the demonic, he saw the hand of Satan at work and he felt through that a prompting to write this, not a an article. Not a blog post, but just crank out three <laughs> volumes, each of which is over six, you know, this one's four, over 400 pages long. Uh,
1: Typical response of Father Spitzer God bless him. Yeah. God bless him is right. Yeah.
0: And I think one of the things that we appreciated from the uh, uh, previous conversation was that he expands the. Uh, not 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 genre, but he expands the breadth of topics that I'm typically associating with Father spitzer, more philosophical, scientific, rational uh rooted in uh, life principles and 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 healing the culture, those sorts of themes. This carries him into a realm that was surprising but incredibly informative. that's how I would put it. Father Lewis, how about you?
1: I agree. It's it seems that, and not just informative, but but you know, as he's progressing through his own life and spirituality and spiritual growth, his writings seem to, at least so far, reflect that because you know, intellectual conversion is is where conversion most often begins, right? And then spiritual conversion would follow. So I can I understand your point. I think that God exists. And now we start to take that in, and we start to believe it, and then that bears fruit in terms of the change of life that we have. Some of the moral conversion, so. Not that Father Spitzer needs these conversions, but he's he's progressing deeper, I think, in his own relationship and discipleship with Christ. And his re- writings, I think, I think are reflecting that, and the progression of them reflects that.
0: Yeah, Father Nagel. I, you
2: know, first off, I, I'm not sure. For me personally, it was sort of intellectual conversion was first. Um, I'm not sure that's always the case. I, I think for some people it's not. I think it's a heart matter. It's an emotional matter that they eventually then learn about the God they have discovered. But either way, I, I do think that this is Father Spitzer's way. So, I, again, it goes back to the autobi- autobiographical richness of the entire work, I think, for me. Um, that this, the, I see Spitzer, even in the order of these things, it, yeah, there's an intellectual rationale for it. But it's also his story, and I think that's one of the reasons this is very much, uh, you know, it's probably maybe too strong, but a a confession. Uh, The Autobiography autobiography is told in terms of this sort of spiritual uh, multi-volume work. And it's not technically, but he does share so much about himself, and I think probably unconsciously or consciously that the structure of this also mirrors probably some of his own experience and his own journey to the Lord.
0: So so interesting. I was going to say that in this second part, we're looking at part two, chapters four through six, and there's some appendices at the end that we're not going to cover today. And in fact, we're not even confident we'll get through chapter four, to be (laughs) honest with you.
2: It's so rich.
0: Chapters five and six talk about the deadly sins and does so with tremendous insight. But chapter four is entitled, How the Devil Works. And I got to tell you, just again, that chapter all by itself was like a manual. Mm-hmm. I mean, it mm. was like a manual. And when I say that, I mean that not just like in the in the popular sense, but uh, after the Council of Trent, it became popular to teach themes of theology in manuals. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I don't know fathers, if you ever did this, but I would kind of dig into some of the like moral manuals and the manuals around spiritual and ascetical theology, ascetical and mystical theology. And that manual form I found like super helpful. Super helpful. Cause it just it kind of map it all out. Like you go from here and here's this stage and here's what it looks like and here are the things that you do about it. And then here's the next one. And it, he does that more in this chapter, in and actually this whole section, but really in chapter four. He spends a lot of time, like, linking and drawing lines. It's like you need a map. <laughs> you need a map. This I talk about in Book 1, Chapter 3, Section 2 of the Quartet. And this re- reflects on all yes. that. Remember all that stuff I did around the four levels of happiness? This actually maps out against that. And here's how. In part what, I mean, just to say, like, and I'll dive in right here as we get started. In Chapter 4, How the Devil Works, he says in... Number one, spiritual maturity, cosmic struggle, and the Lord's loving perspective. He says, for those seeking a way to ultimate happiness and a way out of cosmic emptiness, alienation, loneliness, and darkness, there comes a time, blah, blah, blah. He means something very concrete, very specific, and he intentionally uses the words cosmic emptiness, distinct from, but related to, alienation, which is distinct from? and related to loneliness, which is distinct from and related to darkness. And that's something that um, I would say most readers who are picking up spiritual books, when you see lines of like nouns like that, Mm -hmm. they don't mean that degree of precision and have specific content and uh, experiences associated with them. Anybody who appreciates order— Organization and um, a systematized approach to unfolding content, this book does it.
1: Mm Yeah. 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 I think Spitzer does that a a lot in his, in in not just this book, but other books. uh, The uh, unaccustomed reader could look at these lists of nouns that he puts together things. You know, I think sometimes, like, this seems arbitrary. This seems like it's filler. But he goes on to, to explain and connect those things. It's, it, 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 you're right. It's, it's extremely systematic, but not in a way that's bulky or um, unattractive in its reading. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't bog down the Actually, the, for some it does,
0: because Kerry and I have been arm wrestling oh, really? over this book, and Kerry's like, flip, flip, flip. Okay. Oh. So there are certain ways that he goes about explaining things that are attractive to maybe you, Father, who oh, are maybe more logically oriented and systematized. Not for Kerry. <laughs> they can slow things down for others. Uh, yeah. You know I was. But I'm sorry. I cut you off. Cut Father Nagel.
2: Uh, I maybe I cut you off. So <laughs> go for it. Okay. So it, it goes back to um, Tom. Your your uh, defense and praise of the manual uh, tradition, which has a bad rap, right? Um, if when I was in the seminary, at least. Um, the professors there were talking in the, the works that were given to us. There was this boogeyman from the past, was the manual tradition where we got in, post-Vatican II, we got away from that, where you just sit down there and have these, you know, these the schema of of sin and and what you're supposed to do about it, et cetera, that was seen as lifeless and dry and divorced from the real world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that just as your description of your wife, Carrie, and, and There's probably some, there's some truth to that in the sense of it probably could be eventually lists and these ordered things and, um, but there's something lost too, if we don't have that kind of order in our understanding of the devil's working and the way of grace. So it's just interesting. I think there's something that there, Tom, that you were, you were um, harking back to that that was valuable um, and was life-giving at one time. Of course, everything can kind of go into a decadent phase, perhaps. I don't know. But it's something to think about just in terms of, there's different approaches, different needs, and I think Spitzer does a pretty good job of enlightening sort of the, the manual or the, um, the systemata- systematized structure of pre- presenting moral theology and, and spirituality. So I, I just find it interesting when you, the, the whole idea of the manual tradition. Anyway, throw that out there.
0: Yeah, no, I think that um, uh, that f- folks today who are looking for clarity um, really benefit from that Right, you know, right? right. clarity, um, and and that towards that end of the autobiographical approach, as it's mapped out in the book too, um, I I hadn't thought of it till just now. I, I focused on that connection to the manuals, but I think of John of the Cross and the ascent of Mount Carmel, and or the Dark Knight, and it's in a more narrow uh, focused way. His writings are kind of, a, again, a, an autobiographical mapping out of the journey that everyone takes. But he can only do that because he has made the journey. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that um, uh, in some ways you're right that he is doing this. I, just a general question before we go forward. He uses literary references a lot. Yeah. A surprising amount, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'm, I'm familiar with his other writings. And, and I'm used to him quoting like scientists and philosophers right. and, and occasionally like current cultural references, but this book, in particular, in and in chapter four. Well, no, he also does it in, in chapters five and six yeah, when he, he kind of identifies an example of the deadly sins. Um, he uses extended literary references. Did you find that compelling? Did you find that helpful and interesting?
1: I found it compelling. Um, in fact, he goes out of his way. He'll say, "Now let's take a look at how this plays out in literature." He'll he'll say that in, in like phrases. But I think that's um, I think that's pretty. Uh, I think that's good because, you know, there's something about classic literature that in the telling of those stories, they're as much about the characters in the story as the stories themselves. And, um, you know, in good literature have a way of portraying uh, humanity as humanity really is, in all of its ugliness and brokenness, but also in all of its beauty and glory. And so it makes sense to reference that because they can be things that we can all, maybe we're familiar with or we have access to. So it's not someone's private life, but someone who is has observed humanity and put it in a public form that we can all observe and so we can glean lessons from that but yeah i think it's a good tactic
2: i i agree i thought it was it's it's very valuable and we all love stories um we're all about stories and so again the characters that we love um the the books we've read the plots that we have been absorbed in, the idea that being able to show the way in which um God and grace are at work in those. Um, again, it's just it's you know as preachers or, or as speakers, um, you, you know that people are captured by stories. Um, they're going to listen to you. That you as long as you are telling a story, for for the most part, um, the boring clock stops. You know they, you only have so much time to listen for people before they tune out on you. But if you're telling a story, the, the stop clock you know the clock stops for that, and then it'll start it up when you start to make your point. But I think he's a really wise man to do that.
0: You know, it's interesting. I'm kind of gonna fade off for a little moment here. Um, my philosophy professor and eventually spiritual director in the seminary, an incredible holy priest of God, he talked about the importance of connecting truth and meaning, the mm-hmm. entailments of truth, and if you can find meaningful ways to connect that which is true in terms of how it has necessary implications for life and mm-hmm. you can find experiences in life that they connect to, then you will help truth go from something that's more abstract to something that's relatable and accessible and appro- and able to be appropriated. Mm-hmm. Now, I just said something very philosophical there. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> here it is. You tell a story, people get it. Yeah. Right there, <laughs> there you go. Right. So, um, but I, I took that to heart. I took that to heart and I always take that to heart by trying to link the most profound truths to through analogy Mm -hmm. to meaningful human experiences and stories. And so I can see that. I actually, I was thinking more of um, David Tracy and Bernard Lonergan, right? So so two kind of major theologians from the last quarter of the last century, both who focused on and drew attention to the importance of um, great works, right? The great works of humanity have this, Um, sort of soft glow of God's glory. And there's a way in which there's a radiance to the greatest works of art, uh, the greatest expressions of humanity, because they're created by God, will be a link to authentic insights into Mm -hmm. God, into humanity, and into the relationship between the two. Mm -hmm. So I think this uh, probably somewhat is, is linked to that. Okay. Well, uh, diving then into Chapter 4, I already started, and I haven't even gotten past the first paragraph of (laughs) Chapter 4 here. Um, Father Lewis, we'll give you the privilege of anything in the first section, and if you skip beyond two more pages, you obviously haven't been paying attention to what was in here, so uh, is there anything that you want to draw attention to?
1: Well, we had just been talking about his uh, reference to uh, literature to make a point, and just a couple pages in on our page 190, he makes his point and he begins in his Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien portrays this figuratively and accurately in the ring that Frodo, a seemingly insignificant little creature, a Hobbit, carries around his neck. Um, he's talking about um, you know the point that he had made. You know, is the the tools of the evil one. Uh, we move onto a path of spiritual moral conversion. We present a much greater potential to to help the Lord, a much greater threat to the evil one. And um anyway, so he's, he's kind of as, as Frodo is getting closer, if you know the story, he gets closer to the ring's destruction, it starts to have more power on him. He's more of a threat. he's cooperating more with kind of the the, the blessings and the nature of the good, and and therefore evil is is ramping it up. and um, you know, this connects with uh, you know a lesson that I, I learned in seminary here in, at Bishop White when our our current vicar general he was our vocation right there at the time. he, he would tell us the closer you get helping us in our discernment the closer you get to uh to aligning your will to the will of god to to obeying and fulfilling the will of god for your life the more intense and frequent the devil's attacks on you Mm. and um i thought that was a great lesson it helped me to be just kind of aware of what's going on and this feels like an attack i must be doing something right here and um, anyway so he links that to using the use of literature and story to to emphasize and illustrate that
0: point yeah. Well, and you know, up against a break here. When we come back, Father Nagel, I'm, I'm going to um, build off of the point that you said. I'm going to actually read the the next very short paragraph that makes that link between the Frodo story and his point. And uh, Father Nagel, you can begin with the reflection on that in just a minute on sound insight. Welcome back. This is Tom Curran, and today in the Sacred Heart Radio Book Club edition of the program, I'm with Father Jeff Lewis Father Father Kurt Nagel, and we're discussing the book Christ vs. Satan in Our Daily Lives, the cosmic struggle between good and evil. And today in Chapter 4, we're taking a look at this cosmic struggle, actually plays itself out in our daily lives. Yes, the demonic has you in its target, in its crosshairs. The devil's coming after you, not behind every tree. But there is a devil at work, especially as you, Father Lewis, were making just before. The more that we make intentional, serious efforts to pursue the Lord and to honor him in all things, the more serious will be the attention of the demonic to come against us and attempt to overthrow us. The second paragraph of uh, chapter, I'm sorry, page 191 says this, Even though God is sometimes difficult to detect on our spiritual journey, we can know him by his effects, inspiration beyond our capacity guidance and protection beyond natural coincidence, revealing his unseen providence, and ever-increasing strength and wisdom in the spiritual and moral life through perseverance and resilience. Because my question, Father Nagel, is we just looked at this. Oftentimes, one of the things that becomes so meaningful to people who come alive in faith is the reality that their life isn't an accident,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: that the Lord has a purpose and plan for their lives. Um, did you find that, do you find that to be true, Father Nagel?
2: Oh, I think so. Oh, definitely. I think it's um, one of the great uh, afflictions of our age is meaninglessness. I think it's always a human condition, but I think it's ramped up in our own time. Uh, I, I think that the, the question of, is everything dissolving into nothingness in my life, including, including that? And so I do think the challenge in that paragraph, and what it describes as um, how to detect God in our lives and, and, you know once we know that god is we have once we're convicted that God is working in our lives, things do change because then we're part of a story again, and there's meaning there's outside of ourselves and that's the important thing but I think that we're so used to uh, assuming that the meaning comes from emotion and feeling that these sort of things it, it, we have to step back and kind of change our our, our lens a little bit. The idea, inspiration beyond our capacity, or sort of uh, protection beyond natural co- coincidence. That that's a, those are insights that have to be grasped, and it, it can happen. Certainly, we do, we do. But it's not something like the feeling or the prayer. It's not something that happens in a prayer time when suddenly we have a warm fuzzy experience. It's some. It's an insight. It's it's a it's a recognition of the way things are. That. It, and it's a different look. It, it, it again, it's a kaleidoscope has to shift a little bit, and the and the little colored glass has to shift in such a way. To say, ah, so so that's happening, or that's why that is. Or I, oh, I can persevere. Oh, I am still doing it, and and so again, I think there's a little bit of a challenge there for our for our people. But once we once we do shift that and we recognize, oh, wait a minute, something's happening here. Um, that even in dry times, that can still be true in terms of our prayer experience. So I. I so anyway, I think that that's the the dynamic that I see in people uh, that I do spiritual direction for or preach with.
0: So you know, in this book, uh, in this chapter, there's this like sort of set of three ways, sort of the three kind of principal ways that the devil, um, in his in his manual, attempts to discard, attempts to like overthrow us, get us off that path. And it's temptation, it's deception. And it's discouragement or desolation, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you guys—you probably noticed that because he just—he continues to like take those three in the thread. And I got to be honest with you, I hadn't read it so clearly before, right? If someone said to me, "What are the ways that the devil tries to throw an obstacle and trip you up? How does he try to be a stumbling block to your life of faith?" I wouldn't have just simply said, "Well, of course, it's through temptation, deception, the father of lies." and through discouragement or desolation, making you feel, and he gets into this, making you feel, um, he uses it, uh, criticism, exhaustion, confusion, and suffering, and how we have to push through and persevere. Uh, did you notice that, Father Lewis?
1: I hadn't, but what's interesting is um, you know, some of those same words and terminology. I, I gave a series of uh, faith formation presentations to my parishioners, um, uh, before COVID, it was a, a year and a half ago, on prayer, and then one of those presentations on was on uh, the difficulties in prayer, and it's it's interesting this some of the same tools that the devil uses to use to to attack us were some of the same challenges that I've identified in prayer, right down to the terminology, discouragement, um, you know, feeling deception. overwhelmed, yeah, feeling
0: unworthy, right. right, and well,
1: and, and distractions even, which if we constantly distract, we can despair. Um, and so, you know, you know, if we if we recognize that we have uh, difficulties being able to to pray, um, you know, that may or may not be a direct attack by Satan, but uh, certainly he is pleased by that because why? It's keeping us uh, yet way, uh, yet another way of keeping us from God. So I'm I'm uh, uh, anyway I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not surprised that he identified this. I'd not make that connection, but it's interesting that they overlap. If if any difficulties we might have in prayer, that overlaps with that
0: the nagel well I
2: th- actually I had not noticed it the same way you did Tom but I, you mentioned the word distraction that would be one thing on on I would have added here too if I was going to talk about the way the devil works on us i I was kind of wondering okay because he does get here to it sometimes but he doesn't make it so explicit in terms of the distracting or the hypnotizing or just putting you to sleep uh, or, or or rather than the act of discouragement or the, the temptation just to Kind of let's pretend I'm not here uh, and but he again he, it's not that he doesn't deal with this, but it, I, I i would have added that deception discouragement, discernment, and distraction but but I think this that's why this chap, this chapter four is so powerful is it does lay out the the game plan of satan yeah.
0: it is is so fascinating I, I, I if we have a time to get into it i was interest i i found it interesting how he talked about the devil attacks us through the flesh and directly, and then he kind of shunted off into sort of the uh, end of the chapter, the way that um, the devil uses culture. Mm. Because I was more accustomed to the world of flesh and the devil, and I thought that those three would be covered together, but he never went there. Mm. He always talked about um, the flesh, and that's how I'm calling it. He he talks about egocentricity, like level one. Mm. Um, But the flesh and the devil as sort of direct means of attack um, An attempt to um, undermine our faith, and then how the culture is also used, and he uses that word culture. So that's that. That that's kind of a again maybe a tangential out on the fringe conversation. Father uh, Nagel, I want to go back to uh, section two here. Two common defenses against evil, and uh, I found this fascinating. Page one ninety six, um, the third paragraph, second full paragraph. He says, before addressing specific dimensions of temptation, deceit, and despair, there's those three, we should make one important observation, namely that evil spirits have a much easier task of realizing their dark objectives if they can undermine two common defenses in any of their victims, that is, membership in a church and openness to the full range of rational evidence for a supreme being and human transcendence. Did you happen to catch that point Father Nagel? Yeah. And yeah that, what do you think about that? That
2: was the one I, uh, the one that jumped out at me first, though, was the being, involvement in a church, because I think, <laughs> our society falls headlong into this problem because I think that our gut instinct as twenty first century Western people is that the whole spiritual but not religious. The idea that the institutional church is the problem. And, you know, it's we mostly see the bad side. And there's bad sides. I mean, look at the world today and look at the church today. There are problems. But I just thought it was very fascinating—a defense of being a member of a church to defeat Satan. Just the idea that there's defenses here. There, the idea of magisterial teaching, you know, sacramental life, the idea of having to be with other people and all that that can entail. That this, the devil doesn't like that. He wants to. He wants a temptee that's on his or her own. So I thought that that was so so timely because I think people are are, are questioning what's. Who is the, you know, what's what's the church, what good does it do? Um, we hear so much negative ideas about it, but the devil wants, that's where the devil wants us to go. Go ahead and yeah, leave the church. listen to what
0: he says. Listen to what he says at Tapas 171 and a little bit further down. These individuals, these churchless ones, are virtually powerless to counter the suggestions of evil spirits on a conscious or discursive level. And they are left with only a vague sense of conscience to counter the suggestions of the enemy. Left to their own devices, they can be persuaded to deny their entire spiritual nature, to be led to the extremes of hedonism and ecocentricity, to pursue monetary gain and economic power exclusively, and to pursue political power and status. And he goes on. Then he says this. For evil spirits, this produces a double benefit, the emptiness and despair of the churchless temptee, as well as the misery and oppression of the people around him. (laughs) Hear that again. (laughs) Father Father Lewis, you're nodding your head. You say, people, you're not going to church? Like, what's your condition? Here it is. The emptiness and despair of the churchless temptee, as well as the misery and oppression of the people around him. Do you think people get that?
1: I um I don't think people get that. I think a lot of folks, if they're not already, if they're not already believers, might read that and and probably poo poo it. But all the more reason why I, I I not just appreciate Father Spitzer going right to it, but I love it. And he lists it first: membership in a church is a defense against Satan's attacks. And um, and he doesn't try to to soften it by saying membership in a group that will build you up or anything psychological yes. like that. He says membership in a church. And I almost wish they would have said membership in the church. And, no, but he, then well, he does. I know, he does. He does yeah, in the, very, in the <laughs> very next paragraph, involvement in a church, particularly a Christian church with the teachings of Jesus, and more particularly in the Catholic church with its sacramental life and magisterial teaching. So he begins that, but goes right to it. And he doesn't say, again, it's because of the community. He says it's because of what Jesus is doing through prayer, through scripture, through sacrament, through the teachings of the church. And those are what uh, arm us in defense against the devil's attacks. And I love that he just goes right to it and says it.
0: And it's like, you think about deception, like the devil's deception at work in our culture today. I would say in our society, right? For me, culture is just, it's that spirit that is present in, among people that um, the the bulwark, the the strength to battle against that is a culture of faith. It's a culture of, through my participation in the body of Christ in this Catholic community, I access Jesus sacramentally, especially in the Eucharist, in confession, and then with the other believers, we are going to live a culture of radiant evangelization and speak the truth of the gospel to the world, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, that's what the church offers, mm-hmm. among other things, right? That's what the church is offering. And somehow, why do we lack conviction to talk about that? Why do we, why do we slow and why do we hesitate to present that to people who – are choosing nuns, right? They're 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 n o n e s. They're nuns, and and just have no sense of conviction about going to a church, going to the Catholic Church, going to Mass, getting reconnected to their community of faith. Father Nagel, any insight?
2: Well, a I think the devil's on a winning streak. I mean, if that's his strategy, it seems to be working pretty well. Um, and so I think they just recognize that that what I said just a few minutes ago, I, th- I think is true that that. There's a poisoning of the idea that well, you can say that but you haven't proven it with who you are. Um, and so I think that although that's all true, what uh, Spitzer says, I think sometimes it doesn't get well first off there's there's other other issues as well but but the idea that um, it, are those benefits really there for me? Um, and a do I do I I, I think we're kind of far away from. Those benefits even being seen as benefits um, by people, that they're not even looking for those goods usually. So I think that's one of the temptations to say, oh, this is going to to provide you with all these sort of things. They're looking for, they're they're thinking, well, will it bring me community? Will it make me feel good? Uh, I don't mean that. Will it make me... um, Will bring me peace. I mean, those are the kind of conceptions that they're, they're looking for in the church. And this is a different order of—it's of, a supernatural order of goods that I think most people aren't even asking the questions or looking for those things.
0: You know, you're right. In fact, he gets at that in page 198 and when he shifts from— the presentation about the church as the first defense and moves to reason right. as the second, and this is what he says. And, and Father Nagel, you, you respond back here. He says, "If we to try to persuade this convinced." Temptee, that he's teetering on the brink of meaninglessness and despair because of false assumptions about his nature and freedom, by presenting a few sage passages from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics or a few passages from the New Testament, he's likely to produce either a confused look or more probably a defensive reaction. How dare you suggest that my life is somehow superficial, unreflective, self-limiting, and oppressive to others? You're just jealous of my successes. Who cares about those ancient Greek philosophers anyway? They didn't even have the internet, much less the latest apps.
2: I, I think right there, behind all that, that reaction, which probably is a true reaction, is the idea of what others would call expressive individualism. the The real, the default ideology or metaphysics is I am my own person, and you have no stance by which you can judge me on these sort of issues. So that's where it is. How dare you, you know, suggest that my life is somehow superficial, unreflective, self-limiting, etc. Because it's mine, and, and I'm the sovereign of it, and it's, therefore it must be fine, um, Because if I've chosen this, then I've, I'm, I'm fulfilling my purpose. I'm doing who I'm, I'm being who I'm supposed to be. And this idea that somehow th- that there's fault here, or that I'm missing the mark somehow, or I'm not achieving my end, um, it doesn't really register for them very well. So again, I think the whole metaphysics of the modern society is sort of stacked against us in some ways to break through to the reality that they're still miserable and they are superficial. And I say we, I'm not, I'm not pointing out to anybody in particular, but it, it's a, I think that very paragraph, he's obviously in touch with the real world, somebody who's speaking with people out in the real world, but it is a reaction. I mean, it, it's, well, it's a reaction.
0: So we're up against a break. When we come back, I'm going to read that next short paragraph, and I'll go to you, Father Lewis, because um, I want to ask a question about his approach, because I found it surprising. I-, I wouldn't have gone there. That wouldn't have been the approach I would have taken to say, this is how you break through. So I'll present. I'll read his. I'll mention mine briefly, and then you can say who's right. You better be me. Okay? So, <laughs> all right. We're up against a break. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel, Father Jeff Lewis. We're reading the book, discussing it for the second time. This is part two: Christ versus Satan in our daily lives by Father Robert Spitzer. And I think I'm. I, I think I've, my discernment is clear. I'm not deceived or discouraged. But we will not get through chapter four today, uh, and that's in part two, which is okay because we discussed this as a possibility at the beginning. So, or before we came on. So here we go. So, Father Lewis. Um, Father Spitzer identifies two um, bulwarks against the typical attacks of the enemy, how Satan is attacking us in our lives through temptation, deception, and discouragement or desolation. And he says, membership in a church, and then he uses reason, and this is what he says, if we're to penetrate this extensive, superficial, defensive bulwark, we'll have to return to fundamental principles, reason, and logic, so that we can show the preponderance of evidence in favor of a god a transphysical soul in Jesus Christ. If we can establish the likelihood of these transcendent realities, the temptee may see his former position as superficial and self-limiting, inciting him to take the next step, the pursuit of a Christian church and a life of virtue. And I'm, I'm going to hesitate, hesitantly say I wouldn't have gone there. I would have said something more like um, the radiant testimony of a life changed by someone who's welcomed Jesus Christ fully in their lives. Their brokennesses have been conquered, they're healed, they're living a life of faith and, and res, res, radiating joy and peace and freedom that the other one longs for and doesn't even imagine exists. So I would have gone more towards the radiant witness route. like That's like evangelizing and preaching the gospel. So how do those two fit together and what do you think about that?
1: Well, i agree with you Tom I think if I were to encounter a person who reacted like this in that paragraph above the how dare you statement you know I you know I'm I've been trained in seminary and uh, you know maybe it's also my personal disposition okay so they're speaking from a very emotional standpoint let's try to find a way for heart to speak to heart you know that's uh, john cardinal newman's uh, Um, you know, his Episcopal mottos, his heart speaks to heart. And, you know, there's something about that that speaks to me. Let's try to get them, you know, let's meet them where they are and try to bring them out of the emotive and into the intellectual. And, uh, And, and, and Spitzer doesn't propose that here. He wants to go right to, to reason and logic. That makes sense given a system of thought, his conviction, his conviction that, you know, intellectual conversion in general comes first, moral, con- uh, moral conviction comes last, in between is the spiritual conversion. But I think the key word here for me is if we can establish the likelihood of these transcendent realities, the Tempty may see his former position as superficial and self-limiting. And um, I think that's prudent for him to, to emphasize, well, to, to have included that word may because it may not work. At the very least, you might just be able to hope that you've planted a seed, and maybe it'll give them something to chew on. Uh, and then maybe it will also result in, in them having a second thought, or at least a new thought.
0: Right. It incites him to take a right. step, a pursuit right. of the church. And right. A, right. There's a lot of, uh, you know, conditionals in there. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah.
1: But I think that might connect to a point you made earlier, that um, that... Jesus emphasizes the need for perseverance. For those of us who are trying to show Christ to others and to bring Christ to others, we have to persevere, not just in our own progression in the spiritual life, but with those around us who are also hopefully on that same progression. Uh, St. Paul says as much, we got to be patient with, those whose, uh, with the scruples of those whose faith is weak. And so we need to persevere. Okay, I think I may have planted a seed. I'm not going to just leave it there, though. Let's, let's circle around and come back and just kind of follow up on that and to be deliberate about that. And so it can be both, I think, the heart-to-heart, because I have a, a loving concern for this person insofar as this is a soul that God created and, and God wants to be in heaven forever. And that's my heart-to-heart connection. And my route to the heart, I'm going to try and attempt through reason and logic through the head.
2: You know, I, I agree with you, Tom, in the sense of your original insight. I, I think... But we're also different. I mean, I, in, in my time as a priest, I've seen different people are reached different ways. Um, I think that, again, Spitzer's speaking out of his own experience here and his own personality or temperament and assuming this is uh, this great defense. And I, I do think it is. It's, it's, it's important because I think in, in this time era, that we—it's easy to say when well, nobody's been argued into the church, et cetera. That's not completely true, but there is certainly a place to to say that this is not simply you know a matter of um, pure faith. We have reasons for believing what we believe. It's it's rational um, what we're doing. It's not at least not opposed to reason at all. But I do think your insight is that the most powerful. Um, Approach to someone, especially as Father Lewis says, who's reacting out of this uh, emotional, you have, to, you have to present him with with the, a powerful example of a human being filled with God's grace. Um, yes, that's the reality.
0: Well, and I think this is sort of Father Spitzer's over overarching project. Um, if you look at healing the culture, right, it's a pro-life effort that is all about getting to the groundwork, right? you got to get to the foundation. Grace builds on nature. And if nature has been fragmented and broken up, denied, and doubted, well, we've got to rebuild that through rational argumentation, the use of logic, getting first principles, relying on our tradition, these kinds of things. Um, and that's reflective here, I think, in his approach. Well, I'm going to recommend that we move forward. I'm going to go to page 205 and to you, mm-hmm. Father Nagel, skipping over that section on human freedom, um, which, again, is very manualistic and references the other books that he's done. Uh, the next section is on, and that's not a bad thing, folks. I'm just kind of saying it. The next section is on temptation. And I loved what he did here. In the middle of this, he has four uh, major steps in dealing with temptation. And, uh, and at the top, he mentions, where do the temptations come from? From ourselves or through demonic suggestion? He doesn't say the world. I'm right. like, are you kidding? I mean, most, I think most temptations are coming from the world these days. But be that as it may, the flesh and the devil. Um, when he talks about the temptation, he, he uses the imagination in relationship to temptation. And he's, and he come and he, he basically says it this way. And Father Nagel, just again, I'd love for your reflection on this. Um, first is an image that comes to us. Then we permit we allow these desires that are stirred by this image, then we entertain them, we entertain the uh, the, the thought, the image, and then we choose to act on it uh, that simple mapping out what did you think of that?
2: Well, I was thinking, is this how it works I, I do remember um, reading this and saying, oh first off it's it's good to break it down." Um, and this idea, of this gradual going over Niagara Falls—you know—it's it's kind of going closer, closer. Then, boom—you've you've, you've made the choice. I th- when I when I re- was reading this and thinking about it, I do think, I, I it's like the, I think it's true. I, uh, first off, I, I I I thought it was good in a sense of, um, be careful about how you think and where your imagination goes and. I was also thinking we are not very disciplined and I'm not necessarily very disciplined in my imagination. I have a tendency to think that I don't have any control over it and that this, and it's not a bad thing that I don't, that this is, this is part of my, it's a wrong part of my freedom is that these things happen. Now, at some point I stop it when I, but it's, I stop the process too late. Um, you know, we're ten yards from the ten yards from going over Niagara Falls, and I tried to start to, to roll backwards, as opposed to what? Where am I going from the very beginning? What what are the what what is coming into my consciousness? And um, for me, it was like, how do I fence off way back? It, it talked to me about the old ideas of um, custody of the eyes and these sort of things of what do I read, what do I watch. Um, so anyway, that's where I went with it. It's just that it, it was, it was a nice breakdown and it sort of revealed to me that once again, the idea of disciplining my decisions and my imagination, uh, way back from the idea of choosing is important for me.
1: Um, this makes me think of, uh, another book I've read by Monsignor Brian Bransfield, um, Called the human person, it's kind of his take and summary uh, relating uh, the uh, the uh, theology of the body of JP two to uh, kind of the culture of the time and looking at the uh, last 150 years of American history and he also he identifies what he calls the seven stages of sin. But the the moment of the sin itself is not the first step; it's it's halfway down, and this kind of aligns with that very closely. So they they observe the same kind of thing to be presented with something that could become a temptation and then to let it grow. Um, we're placing ourselves in a near occasion of sin if we if we go that far. That itself, you know, we chalk up as a venial sin, I suppose, but the moment we actually commit the sin, you know, we can be presented with something that could tempt us. A lot of folks will agonize over I was I saw this image or I, I thought I thought this thought or, or I was bombarded with this temptation and they are racked with guilt over that. And um and you know, if they haven't made the choice, well, we're assaulted, and, and you per, and you persevered, you prevailed. But the the choice to sin comes down later. And like Father, like you were saying, you know, if we're going to go that far and let it get that far, how much more difficult it is to resist the the decision to choose to sin? You use the identi- use the analogy of Niagara Falls, and I think of like you know, I'm playing with a snowball at the top of a mountain. I could just put that down or I could let it roll down the mountain and it becomes this huge avalanche. It was much easier to stop that from happening by just putting the snowball over here and um, and not letting it happen. And that would, you know, the moment I presented with something that could be a temptation to to dismiss it, go on to something and, and think of or focus on something that's pertaining to the higher desires of holiness and happiness.
0: You know, and I don't know if this came from a manual or from a, a talk about temptation. It was, uh, the insight was that, um, the way that I was formed, you know, uh, temptations will come to us and we're not you know, responsible for those. We have to be ready for them and, and battle against them. Um, and then the, the, the comment was not so fast, because if you choose sin, you're actually creating the downhill trend, right? You're increasing concupiscence, that urge towards sin. And if you fall into a habit of sin, then even those temptations that you don't consciously like uh, conjure up, they're there because you have chosen sin in the past. So you're actually creating this dynamic in you where temptations are going to arise because of the bondage to sin that exists in your life.
1: I think there's something to that. You know, maybe I don't have any, um, uh, currently I don't have any uh, temptations to sin by gambling away my savings, let's say, so that you can mention the word casino or I could even drive by it. And I'm just not even thinking about that. But then I go in and gamble and maybe I develop that, that addiction. Now I can't even think the word casino and like I got the itch, I got to go, uh, because that has developed. Yeah, I think you're right, Tom. There's definitely something to that.
0: It's so interesting. Back in a minute with sound insight. All right, so here we are. We're in. Uh, uh, we're discussing the book Christ versus Satan in our daily lives, Father. Lewis, we're back. Actually, Father Nagel, I've never given you a chance to kind of reference a section. So we we're down to the three cardinal virtues. Uh, unless there's something before that that you'd like to cover but is there anything in that section, and that begins on page 207, where he focuses in on really three cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. Anything about that section that you'd like to draw attention to?
2: I, I didn't have anything really particularly marked out here. Um, I'm trying to look here very quickly to see if... Um, no. And you know what? Uh, it's yeah. fine. I'm not trying to tempt yeah. you down a
0: wrong path yeah. or deceive <laughs> you or discourage you. No. Uh, and I uh, again, I found it very fascinating the way that he... Um, focused in on how the evil one tailors temptations for each individual. I thought that was, uh, again, a fascinating section. Yeah. And um, and he talks about that on page 212 at the top. He has uh, four like identifiers of how the, the devil is actually specifically molding and shaping a temptation uh, or a plan of attack for each of us. He talks about the vices that we're most attracted to, the virtues that are the weakest or least developed in us, the times and conditions in which we're most vulnerable, and the resentments we might hold toward God, the church, or any moral authority. Um, what did you think about that?
2: I thought that it, I think it's kind of creepy in some sense, you know, in a good way, in the sense of the devil has me personally in his sights. It's not like I'm one of many and he's going to do some sort of blanket um, temptation out there. But it's kind of like people who steal your online information and stuff they' they want to scam you they're doing other things they're, they're going for other people too these these horrible you know black um, ops I don't know what the black web dark web whatever it is the people are just coming out there to try to get your stuff but they they're going after your information and so I thought that that was I think healthy uh, to know hey, wait a minute. He's looking at me. and So what are, what are my weak spots? I better shore them up.
0: You know, it's so interesting, uh, Father Lewis, uh, when I read these four, vices, virtues, times and conditions, when we're most vulnerable, and resentments, I, I put in um, like four other categories. I put in wounds, like from our past, where we were wounded, like mm-hmm. that's a vulnerable spot. And then what about our personality? How about our temperaments. temperaments yeah. How about those tendencies of our uh, of our personality? Aren't those like like prime matter for figuring out like how to attack us? Th- th- those are things that I often think about when Kerry and I talk about the temptations that our kids are drawn to. We tend to focus a lot on those things.
1: Hmm. Well, I think they would still be at play here because that uh, you know maybe I have a. A bombastic personality that is easily wounded when my pride is wounded well that's that's a vice you know and uh and so i i, I don't think that uh father spitzer would would dismiss that i think he would fold it in and, and these are kind of higher more general categories of 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 the of the plan of attack um so that's my suspicion because i that's that's too readily observed in uh lived reality for father spitzer to have just uh um, dismissed it entirely even if he doesn't explicitly discuss it i think he would fold it in
2: I, I think the, one of the distinctions here, though, is what you just described, Tom, those aren't really our fault too much. Um, these are things that we can control, in their weaknesses. The other things are vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, oftentimes we've been wounded, but it wasn't our fault. Our temperament and our personality, oftentimes that's what it is. It's, it, they provide, perhaps, ends for the devil to work. But vices, resentments, um, virtues that, we, that are weak because we haven't worked on them, those are things that are on us, and we might have a, more of a tendency not to work on not, or not to deal with them. I think our culture tends to think in terms of vulnerabilities and wounds and temperaments as opposed to moral flaws that we have allowed the devil to have access to us because we haven't done what we're supposed to do.
0: Yes. No, that, that, for sure that makes sense. Well, and then he, he maps out these types of believers and plans of attack based on his four levels of happiness. Mm. He talks about these four groups, uh, those with no religious or moral conversion, those with weak or tepid religious or moral conversion. And then he moves forward and talks about those that are striving towards strong religious and moral conversion, and then those that have strong religious and moral conversion. And he's thorough. Mm. I mean, he goes into it, and again, he does a lot of correlating between um, this work and the um, the the four levels of happiness and the, the the when he connects it back to this section and that section and he actually does a little bit of previewing here and further into the chapter into how the church's life of prayer and sacraments mm-hmm. that 's volume two of the of the trilogy. Are you guys tracking me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like, uh, <laughs> where he's anticipating that as we unfold this, this is also going to be related to these different levels and layers of conversion. Um, Father Lewis, did you find those sections like interesting, helpful, or any insight in there that you want to draw attention to?
1: I did. I, 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 like you, like you had mentioned, I, I connected these four groups with the four levels of happiness. He probably ex- uh, explicitly stated that somewhere. And I, At I the, very the, the very beginning of the section. At the very beginning of the section. Okay. And uh, you know it's it's interesting. If we want to progress in the ma- more mature and deeper and longer lasting happiness, it's it's um, it's uh, inalienably linked to growth in the spiritual life. We we've got to see that our, the highest level of happiness is is uh, is rooted in God alone, and that means we've got to be we've got to be religious. We've got to be spiritual. And we've got to work toward that. And and um, you know if we have no religious and moral conversion, we're in the for- first group. We're, we live in a just a very superficial. Realm of of uh, not even maybe happiness. He calls happiness, but just I'm I'm content for now. I've distracted myself from the gloom and doom of the inevitable decay. But and and so on from there. I I, I identified that uh, yeah that linking. I appreciated the connections he made.
0: Well, believe it or not, good fathers, we have thirty seconds left. <laughs> Whoa! I cannot believe how quickly this time has gone by. And so, Father Nagel, you get uh, thirty seconds, and then I'll give you thirty seconds, Father Lewis, oh, wow. <laughs> to just offer final comment.
2: I just. Again, this this chapter itself is is a moral handbook and a spiritual handbook, great for spiritual directors, but also for anybody who wants to go into the spiritual life. I'm not I'm not on Carrie's side on this particular one time. I'm on your side. I think this is a book that um, there's just deep meat here, and so I would go out and and definitely get a hold of Christ vs Satan in your in our daily lives by Robert Spitzer. So my 30 seconds is simply a plug.
1: Yeah, mine would be as well. It's a plug. You know, this book is so rich, and I don't know if we'll be able to spend another... Five or six programs discussing it, but it would it would certainly warrant it, and um, you know I
0: think folks just need to read it. And just just a clarification, Carrie actually loves the book. She just (laughs) skips over (laughs) the literature parts of it. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay.
1: Yeah,
0: (laughs) she's actually she won't give it back to me because she's gone into so deeply into these seven deadly sins. She's (laughs) like I got to go to confession. (laughs) So that's a what a beautiful benefit. It's an incredible book, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives by Father Robert Spitzer. Thanks so much for joining me today. Join me tomorrow for more sun inside